Desert with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here. Now, Michael Portillo is back with us. It's a number of times we've had him on the programme talking about the documentaries that he has made about Ireland from a century ago from a British perspective. Remember, there was one on the 1916 Rising, The Enemy Files, one on the War of Independence, Hawks and Dove, and there was Partition, 1921. And we now have Taking Sides, Britain and the Civil War. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. So, at this stage, you were exceptionally well-versed in Irish history. What you discovered about the Civil War, did it in any way surprise you? Matt, um, it did very much surprise me. Um, We made um, a number of discoveries that I think may also be pretty astonishing to Irish people, even to Irish historians. What such as? Well, first of all, I don't know how much we appreciated before about the intimacy between Winston Churchill and Michael Collins. So... Uh, Collins and uh, his team have been described uh, by Churchill as the murder gang. But when Collins arrived in London late in 1921 as one of the plenipotentiaries to negotiate a possible treaty with the British, uh, Churchill and Collins rather hit it off, I suspect, because they were both men of action. They were both men who thought that violence was part of the toolkit uh, Collins and Churchill were both charismatic. And um, I think Churchill thought that he could trust Collins at that stage. Um, it seems that uh, Collins, who could pretty much predict that he might well die during the conflict, during the Civil War, sent a valedictory message to Churchill through intermediaries who were members of the British establishment. And the message was, tell Winston that we couldn't have done anything without him. Uh, And the relationship between the two was complicated in that Churchill later was very anxious, not to say distrustful, as to whether Collins was actually going to deliver on the treaty. Uh, But nonetheless, he, uh, he was obviously flattered, Churchill, by the fact that Collins had thought that nothing could have been done uh, without Winston. The other revelations in the documentary um, relate to the degree of the close relationship between the Irish provisional government, that is to say the government that was set up by those who had signed and agreed with the treaty, and the British government, uh, a relationship that in particular uh, spanned the supply of uh, armaments so that the British could be reasonably assured that their side the pro-treaty side, was going to win the civil war. That's really interesting because that partiality is important because maybe there were some people who might have thought that having left Ireland, if a civil war had broken out, then the British might have just let the Irish to fight it out amongst themselves. Not our problem anymore. But from what you've discovered from examining all of the files available in Britain, they very much wanted to see the pro-treaty side win out. Uh, Absolutely. And also, they hadn't left Ireland. Um, Quite a large number of troops remained in Ireland. The number was dwindling during the course of 1922, but it was still in the thousands. And um, at least some elements of the British government, in particular Winston Churchill, entertained the possibility of retaking Dublin uh, with British troops. Um, I think that that was a trap set for the British 
by the anti-treaty forces who had occupied the four courts in Dublin. They wanted to re-engage in conflict direct with the British because they thought that would reunite Irish factions. It's a trap into which Churchill very nearly fell. Fortunately for Churchill, Michael Collins undertook the very violent retaking of the four courts and was successful. Uh, and uh, there's an interesting uh, codicil here that Churchill, when he left office in October of 22, because he was thrown out of the coalition, being uh, a liberal, Churchill then thought back that he'd left behind in government a document that could be very embarrassing, which was his draft of a proclamation in which the British army had again seized control of Dublin and rounded up all the troublemakers and shoved them into jail. And uh, Churchill, being then um, a, a, a backbench member of parliament, writes to the civil service and says, would you please destroy the draft of the proclamation that I wrote? I think thinking that it would have revealed to the world an awful blunder that he very nearly committed. Yeah, because what might have happened if he had done that? Did he actually think that he would have British-controlled six counties in Northern Ireland and a British-controlled Dublin and the rest of what had been formed in the, as the free state existing beyond British control? <laughs> it's, um, it's a very good question, but... You and I are not alone in being slightly puzzled by this because it also strikes me that when uh, Collins and Griffith are in London in December 1921 and they're persuaded to sign the treaty, they're partly persuaded because they are harangued by David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, who threatens him. He says, unless you sign this treaty, we're going to go back to sustained and unremitting war against you. I regard that as a pretty uh, uh, meaningless threat. Uh, it was a bluff. Uh, the British did not have the forces. The British were weary. You know, the reason there'd been a ceasefire was that the British were very weary of the conflict. But um, it appears that Collins and Griffith uh, were intimidated by the threat. And so uh, from time to time, threats of violence by the British did seem to convince the pro-treaty forces. Um, it's interesting that Churchill makes a speech in Parliament, I think it's in uh, June 1922, when the four courts in Dublin have been occupied by the anti-treaty forces, and he's very impatient with Michael Collins, who's not yet used military force to throw the rebels out and to regain control of the buildings. And Churchill says to the House of Commons, this is a clear breach of the treaty that we've signed, and unless action is taken very quickly indeed, we will regard this as a breach of the treaty, and we will have a free hand to go back to war. And Collins within a few hours, reacts to that and starts to bombard the four courts with artillery, artillery lent to him by the British government. And indeed, you also revealed that there was a plan to lend the Free State Government planes that would be painted green. <laughs> I mean, this is almost uh, beyond belief. The, um, the British government had uh, some Bristol bombers uh, located at Collinstown near Dublin, and they were capable of carrying a largest payload of 20-pound bombs. And Churchill's proposition was that these planes should bomb the four courts. Uh, I don't know to what extent the technology had been tested. There were doubts on the British side. Some people thought that maybe a 500-pound bomb would be more appropriate to drop on the four courts in the centre of Dublin. Uh, and it got to the point where the planes were practising uh, bombing. We can see this from the records that were kept at the airfield. Um, and Churchill proposed 
that uh, they should not be flown by Irish flyers. Churchill was dismissive of Irish capabilities. He said that Irish flyers would kill men, women and children. So they were to be flown by the RAF, but they were to be disguised as uh, flying for the Irish Free State. That is utterly extraordinary. You've partially answered this question already, but I'm going to put it anyway. What if the anti-treaty side had actually looked like winning? What from the British point of view? Yeah. Uh, well, the British would have been in a, a in a great dilemma. It's it's a good question, and I must say I had not considered it until this point, because the, as I have said already, the British were very weary of Ireland. They were weary of being. Uh, you know, harried and harangued, harangued in uh, Ireland, and they wanted to withdraw troops, and I think they probably substantially had withdrawn troops. So it would have been an immense uh, problem. Um, and also, you know, having already admitted the possibility that um, Ireland should enjoy a degree of self-government, obviously they would not have been able to go back to the point of arguing to the British people that they were fighting on, you know, the big point of principle, which was um, to stop these, uh, you know, rebels breaking away from Britain. However, of course, at this point, it's worth remembering that what the treaty gave to the Irish was not what many Irish wanted. It was not a republic. It was not independence. Uh, Ireland was to continue to um, swear an oath of allegiance to the crown. It was continue. It would continue to be part of the uh, empire, it would have a status that was similar at the time to Australia and Canada. So, of course, de Valera and many others were wholly unsatisfied with that. Michael Collins, on the other hand, and Griffith were of the opinion that that was all that could be uh, wrung out of the British. You've mentioned Collins loads of times. I think that was your first yes. mention of de Valera. What, yes. did your, uh, f- what did you find about de Valera amongst all the British papers? What do they make of him? Well, the British um, had an intelligence operation and they spied upon the uh, Irish. And I came across a pretty low-grade intelligence about uh, de Valera, which was their appreciation of what he was like as a person. And the British predict, they think they think that de Valera is going to come to London to be in part of the negotiations. And uh, they're predicting that he's going to be a bit of a bore from the British point of view. He's going to go on and on and on about how wrong the Irish people have been by the British. He's going to go through history. He's going to uh, talk about the iniquity of the defence of the uh, Protestant people of Ulster versus the treatment of the uh, Catholic people uh, in, in the South, etc., etc. Um, but it's interesting you say I hardly mentioned de Valera. De Valera does not really feature much in this period. He has been the self-proclaimed president of the Republic. His plenipotentiaries come back with a treaty he and others are against it. But as it gets into the Civil War, I think I'm right in saying that on the anti-treaty side, it is the military personalities who are much more to the fore. Uh, On the pro-treaty side, of course, Collins is both a plenipotentiary and a military leader, so he is very much uh, in the frame. And since uh, de Valera is on the losing side, uh, as you will know a great deal better than I, there there follows a period after the defeat of his side where de Valera goes into the wilderness and I dare say cannot have expected the brilliant political career that lay ahead for him. You've done your four documentaries. What do you think overall you've learned from this experience? I think principally I've learned that um, (laughs) 
that Ireland was always a nuisance to the British establishment, that it was uh, it was always something they didn't really want to think about, that the British always had something more important on their agenda. I, I mean, think about the period after 1918. You know, Britain has just defeated uh, Germany and the uh, and and its allied powers. Uh, Lloyd George is this global figure. He's re- redrawing the map of the world along with President Woodrow Wilson. And there's this terrible sort of nuisance, you know, there's this kind of mosquito in the room, which is Ireland, which is kind of, you know, bothersome and annoying. And I think, you know, the, 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 the British never really think very carefully about it. Or going back to 1916, you know, the British are fighting an existential war. In 1915, they very nearly lost the war because of their deficiency of musicians against the Germans. And in this period, it turns out that, you know, a group of uh, extremists, as the British see it, stage an uprising in Dublin using rifles that have been supplied to them by the Germans. You know, this is, this is inexplicable and it is a nuisance and the British kind of never quite focus on the problem. And there are many prejudices as well. General McCready, who was in charge of British forces in Ireland, says at one point, um, I hate the Irish more than I hate the Bosch. Uh, Churchill says at one point, something like the Irish have a genius for conspiracy, but not for governing. So there are these prejudices. And then one point that's very important, of course, is that the British conservatives, at the least, Churchill is not a conservative, by the way, at this point, the British conservatives look at Ireland through the prism of unionism, of Northern Ireland, of the defence of the Protestant interest in the North. Given all that, Michael, can you understand why we might have wanted rid of you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a person who believes in uh, self-determination. Um, but of course, if I believe in self-determination, that also means that I can understand why the British would leave the European Union and I can understand why Ulster Unionists would not wish to be ruled by Dublin. Self-determination uh, uh, is a big subject. Well, on that, how's Brexit working out for you? Oh, um, splendidly. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we leave it there. Listen, it's been great talking to you again. I'm fascinated uh, by this topic and I'm really looking forward to the broadcast of Taking Sides, Britain and the Civil War, the latest in this fascinating series. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.